It's April 23rd, 2020. This is Rook. What is the current state of the world doing to our mental health? And what does that say about our past and how we move forward? Dr. Farnoz Zendedel is a psychologist on radio and TV and in private practice who specifically works with people of Iranian descent in Los Angeles. She'll join me to tell me what she's learned. But first, we continue our focus on resilience. This time, a well-known philosopher, academic, and author who has survived imprisonment and has a perspective on our current global fragility. Ramin Jahanbeglu is standing by to give his thoughts. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. This is Rook. I hope you are Mizun, as my dear uncle used to say, solid, wherever you are. Welcome to episode number three of our program. Uh, in about 30 minutes or so, I'll be joined by Dr. Farnoz Zendedel, who's in Los Angeles, California right now. But first, to India. A pandemic is an extraordinary event, and the horror it unleashes is extraordinary too. Witnessing and experiencing universal suffering for no apparent or comprehensible reason and feeling helpless in the face of forces that we have little or no control over, inevitably these brutal facts can evoke deep philosophical questions in us. And for many people of Iranian descent, you might say philosophy is an indivisible part of identity. Persian philosophy is generally traced back to ancient Indo-Iranian roots, and there are few better versed in Persian and Indian philosophies than my first guest today, Dr. Ramin Jahanbeglu. Ramin is a political philosopher and the author of numerous critically claimed books and articles. He is presently the executive director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies and the vice dean of the School of Law at Jindal Global University, Delhi, India. And Ramin Jahanbeglu joins us from Delhi right now. Hello, sir. Hello. Uh, nice to hear your voice. It's very nice to have you doing this. Thank you for this. Ramin, uh, if, if we can start with this, paint a picture for me, if you will. Where are you right now and what are you experiencing as COVID-19 hits India? Well, uh, like everybody else, I'm in confinement. I'm living in the suburb of Delhi, uh, a place called Noida in a gated community. Uh, I haven't been out of this community actually for something like 20 days already. And as you know, the confinement has been extended yesterday by, uh, two days ago actually, by the Prime Minister Modi. So we will be confined again until uh, May 4th. And I have to do my classes actually with, uh, online, which will resume again uh, on Monday. So I've been uh, at my time writing a, a book on uh, the art of living and dying. <laughs> it's not a, a philosophical, I would say, reflection on what's going on right now for humanity. I have to I have to ask you about that book. That that is very interesting. You had told me that that's something you're working on and it seems almost prophetic. Let me take a step back though first and say, you know, today I noticed there's a piece in Time magazine from a man who spent 8 years in a Myanmar prison talking about what he learned about surviving confinement and it made me think of you. You were detained in Iran in prison in 2006. I'll, I'll ask you more about lessons learned from that in a few minutes, but let me just ask you this first. In a time of global self-isolating, what did that harrowing experience teach you about dealing with confinement? Being in prison is much more difficult than the being confined, actually, in an apartment where you're master of your own destiny uh, up to some point. Uh, and you don't have interrogations and you're not blindfolded. And you have time to write. I mean, in my case, I have time to write, uh, to read books and write my book 
which was not the case in, uh, in, in prison. It was much more difficult. But anyway, I think the coronavirus pandemic is quite challenging. It has changed our mode of being in the world. It shows us that uh, we are very fragile species. Ontologically, I mean, our mode of being very, very fragile, but we will see in the consequences that uh, we are socially, economically, politically, I would say morally also very fragile. And uh, this is what's going to happen and be with us for a long period of time. Uh, it's only in the times of crisis like First World War, Second World War, pandemic, that I think humanity, all humanity, uh, realizes that it's very fragile and it might get destroyed very easily. And uh, sometimes I think that puts in, into question practically all that we have been doing at the level of uh, modern civilization uh, and without too much reflection on this. And today, I think we need to redefine, after the coronavirus pandemic, we, we, we need to redefine what is happiness and what is really well-being. Because really globalization was giving us an illusion of what happiness is and what well-being is. Okay, you've said a lot there I want to respond to. First of all, you're, so you're working on a new book called On the Art of Living and Dying, which uh, I'm assuming you began writing before the pandemic, but it does sound prophetic. What is your focus? I started writing it with the consignment, and I'm practically at the end of it. I mean, it's a, it's a short book, but it's mostly uh, getting the help of all the civilizations, all the philosophers in the past, trying to redefine what I understand by the art of living. Is the art of living just individualism as we have it uh, in most of the societies, especially Western societies? Is it about only our wants or has it to do with a more, more, I would say, profound way of looking at life and looking at our uh, fragility? Same thing with the art of dying. I and mean, actually, you know, in, uh, in most of our spiritual traditions, I am either monotheistic or oriental religions. Dying, even if we don't believe in God in a religion like Buddhism, dying uh, was always meaningful. And now I think that uh, living and dying has become more and more meaningless. What the coronavirus pandemic is showing us uh, is that, you know, you can have hundreds of thousands of people dying in a very meaningless way, and they don't even have graves, and people don't know even their names. So we need to have, I think, a, a huge reflection on all this, especially because we're going through several levels of fragility and crisis, and one of them is the crisis of leadership in today's world. Let me get to that. When you talk about, you've mentioned fragility a few times, and you wrote a piece last week in a French magazine talking about how this pandemic has underscored our collective fragility. What do you, what do you mean when you talk about fragility? I think that uh, from time to time we lose or we get to the illusion that uh, we are no more fragile, that we are uh, the king of the world. Uh, hmm. If you go and ask Donald Trump, I'm sure that Donald Trump would tell you he, he doesn't think that he's fragile at all. Or if you ask Bill Gates or uh, people like this, I mean tycoons, they would certainly come up and tell you that they don't think that they have any, any fragility. But certainly, I mean, a, a peasant in South America or uh, in India, they might think of themselves uh, as more fragile because they have been under pressure all the time. But I'm talking about human race in general and not only about different social categories of the human race. The pandemic shows us that, first of all, there is no governmentality. Our leaders are not moral leaders. They cannot protect us, as we can see. And secondly, we are in a kind of a moral crisis because we don't know anymore why we're living and where are we going. And nobody can tell us. So that's, I think it's a huge thing. I mean, well, that's, uh, that this, that's why we speak uh, to philosophers. That's why we're speaking to you, because we're trying to get answers. I mean, yeah. th this is, it, it's confounding the world. There's a lot that, to unpack there when you talk about the world being ungovernable. Let me get to that. But first, with again, with fragility, is there some benefit? Is there something to be gained by thinking of oneself as fragile? In other words, will we, will we somehow act differently or be more cautious or uh, come out of this with an awareness, a consciousness that, that we wouldn't have had otherwise? 
No, unfortunately, we don't come out of it with really consciousness. We don't take it. I mean, the whole uh, project of modernity, look at uh, the French philosopher Descartes. He talks about the fact that we can become masters and possessors of nature. So, and this is what we have done. And to be frank, the coronavirus has to do with our manners of eating and our manners of uh, treating uh, uh, the ecology and the environment. I mean, uh, if man continues eating everything and destroying everything, human beings are going to be destroyed themselves. But every day that we get up in the morning, we are not very conscious about this fact, especially because capitalism, our economic context, and governments around the world, they gave us the illusion, especially in the past 20 years, I would say in the 21st century, that everything is going to be okay as long as we can live in a globalized world. Now, coronavirus is only one of the symptoms of our globalized world. We have also global terrorism and many other, I would say, symptoms. Some of them are lethal symptoms, I would say, like the coronavirus and other pandemics. So the problem is not only that we're going to have economic consequences, many people are going to be unemployed and... uh, and the the world economy is going to be in a very bad shape at least for two years, three years down down the road. But this is one of the problems, which is a big problem. But the problem that I'm trying to understand is should we change our mode of life? And the questions that we ask in life, uh, should we do that? Should we? And what is and what is your answer to that? Uh, what is your answer to that? And the answer is yes, yes. Yes. First of all, we, have, we need to go back to our spirituality uh, without really, I'm not asking people to believe in God or in apocalypse, but uh, I'm asking them to know about the spiritual treasures of, uh, or the backgrounds of what their rootsness, which can be helpful in times of crisis because it can give meaning to your life and it, it can save you and you can understand why you're fighting in something. If we compare coronavirus crisis with the Second World War, 50 million people died during the Second World War, yes. but they knew why they were fighting against Nazism. Now, coronavirus, uh, it's very lethal, and we have to destroy it somehow, somewhere or another, but we don't have any global solidarity in doing so. I mean, that's, look at the mismanagement which has been around the uh, mm-hmm. governments uh, mm-hmm. in the world uh, to stop this mm-hmm. virus. Mm-hmm. When you talk about meaningless deaths it's a, it's such a a jarring two words i think about how on a personal level losing someone how incredibly impactful that, that is how it can change the course of a lifetime how it can be so disruptive that you can never recover from it or 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 that it leaves scars forever and then i think about this current moment where I'm turning on the TV and seeing just numbers of people who are dying. It's just like a, a rolling tabulation, uh, like a telethon or something. Can you reflect mm. on what you call the meaningless deaths and how we process that? This is exactly what I'm saying. I mean, uh, people become numbers. They die incognito. I would call it an absurd way of dying, which has to do with the fact that the governments and people who decide about today, about how we have to live in our confinement, how if we die, what's going to happen to us, they don't know how to control things. And of course, all that is going to have a lot of consequences psychologically, it's going to have consequences on our lives. And of course, the, the phenomena of social distancing itself is going to have consequences also, because uh, we are now doing everything online, and uh, this is our new mode of uh, socialization and communication. And at the same time that we're becoming safer and we're using uh, modes that we're using right now between me and you, there's a paradox with online living together because it's not really living together. It's kind of a social solitude. And nobody thinks about these. I hear the the angst of of the, the, this notion of the meaningless deaths. I'm still not sure. And and again, I see uh, like you do the the political leaders or the people who are sort of running the world are com- confounded. I mean, the zigzagging of policies yeah. would speak to that. So, how are we supposed to process this? In other words, if I see those numbers rising, it's so overwhelming. What am I supposed to think? 
Well, how am I supposed to deal with that? I'm worried about my mom in Thornhill. You know, I can't. I can't necessarily yes, process it, thousands dying. It should in, be like that. It should be like that. But unfortunately, it's not always like that. That's what I'm saying. This meaningless mode of dying is very closely connected to a meaningless way of living. Mm. You know, we're living with a lot of uncertainties. Um, all of us. We uh, nobody knows about what's going to happen to humanity in ten years from now, or even one year from now. Yes, and uncertainty is with us all the time. This is not the way our grandfathers and grandmothers lived. They usually they were growing up in a tradition, a tradition of thought, tradition of spirituality. Any place in the world, Africa, South America, Middle East, Europe, North America. And they knew about the profession most of the time. And eventually, if they, they were rebellious or creative, they still knew in which context to work and to do things. Mm. But today, I think that uh, the problem is that it's in the mode of living is also uncertain. And we don't know where we're going. Actually, we're walking in the dark. And we cannot see the end of the tunnel. So when there is no art of living, and you're just living to live, well, you die to die. Yeah. I mean, the, the death it becomes also very uh, meaningless. When you talk about, Ramin, when you talk about the world becoming ungovernable and this crisis of, of le politics, of leadership, is it fair to compare leadership in different parts of the world to throw everybody in the same the same bullpen so i mean is modi in india and and the the leadership in in iran the same as justin trudeau who's the same as uh, as donald trump is it is it fair to say that no certainly not there are levels of mismanagement there are different levels of governmentality but one thing which brings all of them in the same hat, is that none of the leaders in today's world have moral legitimacy and moral capital. What does that mean? None of them are moral leaders. It means that we don't have anymore a Mandela, we don't have a Václav Havel, and we don't have people to whom we can look look up, and they will tell us what, what they tell us. Mm. We will understand and we say, okay, this man knows where he's taking us. Or this woman knows where she's taking us. This is not the case anymore. And that, I think, is also one of the crises that we're living. It's a crisis of governmentality. We need to ask if our government will become more fragile economically, more fragile politically, or will they turn towards a more authoritarian gesture? And this is actually happening right now. I mean, right. some of the regimes, as you mentioned, are authoritarian already, but look at Hungary, for example. Orban, he's trying to use the corona crisis uh, to become more authoritarian, you know, and actually Hungary is in the middle of Europe. So, And what, and what, about, uh, in, what about India, where you are right now? Yeah, India is, uh, is the same thing. I mean, of course, there's a difference between Orban and uh, Modi, because Hungary is not necessarily as democratic as India could be, but of course, we're talking about populist regimes, and coronavirus is helping out the, the authoritarian regimes and populist regimes, because they can destroy their enemies easily, but at the same time, they're going to expand this surveillance, uh, digital surveillance. Yes. And again, going online is looks uh, very clean and very interesting, but at the same time, it takes a lot of our freedoms and liberties. So this is one of the points that I'm making. Uh, where is humanity going, uh, actually, with this? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. eventually we're going to destroy the, the virus, but we gonna, are we going to give up uh, our uh, liberties? liberties? Are, are we ready to do that? The government are asking us to do it. They say, if you want to be safe, okay, we confine you, and eventually, like in India, if you come out, we're going to beat you up. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. This is Rokamji Angamashir. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Ramin Jahanbeglu. He's in Delhi, India. Uh, Ramin, have you been in touch with uh, with people in Iran during this time? W what are your your reflections on how Iran has dealt with this crisis period? Yes, I've been in touch with uh, different people in Iran, and most of them, uh, they are very much worried. I think that the Iranian regime has mismanaged completely 
the corona crisis and has been lying to the people as usual. People don't know exactly how many people have died and how many people are really corona patients. When you ask the Iranian population to go back to work, it doesn't mean that necessarily you're controlling the things uh, as you should do. So, again, a crisis of governmentality, which has been there, of course, for a long time. So nobody expects uh, the Iranian leaders to be able to, to control the corona crisis. But uh, at least we expect them to somehow be able to follow the path of uh, the World Health Organization or uh, what's asked for the, by the others. But unfortunately, this is not the case. It's, it actually repeats itself all the time. It's, it's the same thing which has been repeating itself for the past six months uh, with the Ukrainian flight and with the November turmoil and killings in Iran. It has been repeating itself, actually. So I'm very worried about the Iranian population because I think that First of all, the conspiracy theories that Iranians usually use all the time as excuse for the mismanagement of things. This is not going to work. And secondly, I think that um, unfortunately, more people are going to die in Iran if uh, you know the, the virus is not stopped as it should be stopped. You know, as I'm speaking to you, there's so much of what we're talking about are are big, big questions, big ideas, which which would be one would think, well, of course, I mean, it's that's not counterintuitive if I'm speaking to a, a political philosopher, you know. But 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 these are the questions that everyone is asking right now. I mean, I mean, besides yeah, it's sure. it's it's lethal physiological dangers. The corona pandemic is it's it's waging havoc in our philosophical understanding of existence itself. Let me ask you. Is there a fundamental difference in how people of Iranian or Indo-Persian heritage perceive and come to terms with something like a pandemic as compared to Western societies? Not necessarily, because we have become, uh, especially our younger generation, has become very disenchanted and uh, very distant from its own roots and spiritual roots. And uh, I, I'm not, I'm not asking people to become to be religious. I'm not religious myself. But having roots is very important, culturally, spiritually, psychologically. It helps you actually to kick your head up when you're drowning. So I think that that's what's needed. I mean, i give you an example, and I think that the auditors are going to understand also. What happened in Tehran a few weeks ago, that a group of people, young people, wanted to go to a party, and they asked somebody to come and take a test, the corona test of them. And they pay a huge amount of money to get the test. And they don't know if they, uh, the lady who came to do it, because she was interviewed, uh, I think, on one of the TVs, non-Iranian TV, if she's really a doctor or not. But, I mean, the fact that parking is so important right. that you put yourself in danger right. is the mode of living that I'm talking about. You know, there is no art of living behind that. It's just that you think that tomorrow you're going to die, so let's go and party. This is the question that I'm asking. Should we continue having the same mode of life and um, same way of eating, same way of doing things, uh, eventually tomorrow uh, there's no more confinement, and just as if nothing has happened? I say no. And I, I explain why. Because each time humanity went through a huge crisis, uh, like a war, for example, it has had, of course, political and economic consequences, either good or bad. Uh, it was good for the, after the Second World War for Europe, actually. We, we went towards the United Europe, and we had the human rights, and we had the United Nations, and everything else. But it could have also the bad side. And I think that the coronavirus is going to create also the bad side. I mean, we have to ask ourselves what kind of institutions we need now in the world. Many of the institutions are, are very old institutions, the international institutions I'm talking about. They cannot respond correctly to this type of uh, crisis. And also, we understand better that if there is a climate change crisis, it's going to be terrible. Now yes, that we have yes. this coronavirus, we're, we're seeing something and we terrible. We know, we right. understand what. 
Yeah. But can and I just... But, 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 cannot do anything but, about it. But just a couple of steps back, and not to necessarily uh, defend... Uh, I get your point about the perfunctory nature of needing to go to a party in Tehran in the middle of this, but, but there is an element to that that is understandable in re-social distancing, right? I mean, this is like Aristotle's famous definition of humans as social animals by nature. And now everything we're being asked to do yeah. is to avoid the virus. Uh, it runs counter to our nature as a species. So so, so how, how do we deal with that? And, and particularly, I think of Iranians, and again, I don't mean to be superficial, but culturally, a lot of what we do is based on mehmunis, gatherings, you know, uh, it's, it's all social, it's all the, the extended family, it's all about interaction. You can't suddenly put people in a bunch of apartments and say, don't talk to, don't, don't see each other physically and, uh, and expect that that isn't going to have an impact, can you? Yes, I mean, uh, I understand that, and uh, as an Iranian Canadian, I, be, I do believe in that, and then the French and the Italians and the Spanish and others, and that Latinos, they do it also all the time, but I think that we can party, and we can go to Mehmanis, uh, as you say, as we say in Persian, uh, but at the same time, ask the right questions, in the same way that we try to do it in politics. So the, the right question would be, now that we understand that we have had done something wrong and we got, we caught this virus, what should we do not to get it again? Right. I ask myself the question, why is it that humanity in, in 26th centuries, uh, let's say since the Greeks, always they caught a virus or something like that from animals all the time, like the plague, you had it. And then you have forms of influenza that came from uh, birds. And now you have the coronavirus, and they say that the origin comes from animals also. So it shows that things are not as natural as we, as we think. If humanity goes on, uh, and here I'm, uh, I become a rigid environmentalist. Mm. If, if humanity goes on, eating animals, killing whales and sharks and uh, cutting trees, these kind of pandemics and these kind of problems are going to come back. So let's, you, we party, yes, but we ask the questions, the crucial questions also at the same time. We, don't, we do not remain idiots. You talked, about, you talked about technology earlier, and we are living in this age of social media. Like even before COVID-19, we were dealing with folks who sadly appear to be living in a parallel cyber universe, void of all reality, or at least out of touch with true human interaction. Now that billions of people are forced into isolation, tell me about how much you think social media can compensate our need for a social life. You know, I'm not a very much social media person, so I'm not exactly the right person to ask. You know, I don't have a Facebook, I don't have a Twitter, and I, I, I don't like to read books on Kindle. Why don't, why don't you use why don't you why don't you use Facebook? Why not? Because it is it, a waste of time for me. Because I, it reminds me of what a, a Polish sociologist uh, in his eighties told me. He said, "You know, I've lived eight years and I have only five friends, and somebody comes to me and saying one weekend on Facebook there are five hundred friends. What kind of friendship <laughs> is that?" Uh, he said, "I don't understand this notion of friendship. It's not exactly." Uh, essential way, again, it's not an art of living, essential way of living, which I like. Going deep into people, into people's spirit, uh, has a mobility of spirit, I would say. I don't think that Facebook has a mobility of spirit at all, especially at the level of chatting and everything that people write about each other is certainly not. Now, I'm not saying that we have to ban it or something like that. I feel that I, I, I live as a marginal. I like the way to live as marginal because I think that uh, if I want to create the way I create and write, I need to have my marginality. It's a kind of a constructive marginality. It means intentionally putting yourself uh, at the, the side of things? It's not intentionally. It has become a mode of living, not on the side of things, but trying to do things in, in my way also, you know, uh, in my way of teaching and uh, believing in the, some kind of a humanism, which very rarely is, uh, people believe in it anymore. I mean, it's not to be arrogant at all. It's just uh, uh, the way I've uh, been instructed and educated uh, in French society. 
And uh, I'm, I, I look up to people who actually have an encyclopedic mind, and I really don't uh, appreciate very much bureaucrats who come and tell you mm. uh, the way you have to live and do the, the way you have to do things without really knowing about human culture. So the notion of culture is also very important because it's uh, through that we can understand where are we coming from. Again, our rootedness. Let's talk about the Iranians uh, very shortly. I know that we are practically at the end of the, the program, for me at least. Uh, let's talk about the rootedness. Iranians flattered themselves are being nationalistic and flattered themselves are being very much rooted. But they really don't know about their history. If you want really to be, what, what does it mean to be Iranian today? I think there are several layers of being Iranian today. Yes. You know, you have a spiritual level, uh, either as a Zoroastrian or a Shiite Muslim or a Sunni Muslim or a, a, a Iranian Jew. But at the same time, you have a modern layer, uh, which is Iran for the past 150 years. And you have what I call the imperial syndrome, which is that every Iranian says, I'm a descendant of Cyrus the Great and Darius the Great. And they are actually the pioneers of the human rights and this and that. So this is how we need to approach, uh, I think, the uh, Persianness. And same thing, uh, Indians have to ask themselves about their Indianness. So rootedness is very important because the coronavirus comes and goes and uh, pandemics and wars. But if you, you do not have this rootedness, we will not survive. We cannot survive. Rami, before I let you go, you've personally been through so much. I mean, you, you've been exposed to the darkness of, of human nature. Back in 2006, you were detained in Iran. You've experienced social solitary confinement, uh, interrogation, humiliation firsthand. What, what keeps you hopeful about humanity? Nonviolence, of course. The fact that I think that... Uh, uh, I go back to Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Dalai Lama and Mandela and many others. And I think that nonviolence is the answer to this darkness. It's the only answer that we have had it, actually, since antiquity. We have had it with the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus Christ. We had it with the Buddha. We had it with the, uh, Zoroaster in Iran. And, of course, in modern times, great leaders like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Mandela. So I think that nonviolence is the future of humanity. And it's not an ideal. It's actually a very practical sense of governing a society and organizing a society because politics is about is the art of organizing the society. And if we want to organize a society nonviolently, we need to fight all forms of violence that uh, exist in our lives and actually uh, destroy us. So I think that nonviolence for me is what's what's pushing me forward in my life. On a more granular level, perhaps, if you were to be able to pass a little note to everyone in the world right now in the middle of this pandemic, um, what what would you want to tell them? I would tell them that there is a common humanity, that this common humanity is apt for compassion and empathy. And humans can understand the suffering of each other. And because they are compassionate and they can understand the sufferings of each other, they can surmount it and go beyond it and transcend it. It's really good to talk to you. There's so much that you say that, uh, that, that to, to, to react to, and we, do, we just barely uh, scratched the surface. But I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I look forward to, the, uh, Thank you to very your, much. your book. Thank you, Ramin. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Ramin Jahanbeglu. He is currently the executive director of the Mahatma Gandhi Center for Nonviolence and Peace Studies and the vice dean of the School of Law at Jindal Global University, Delhi, India. Ramin Jahanbeglu joined me from Delhi today. This is Rook. 
conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. We're going to get to Dr. Farnoz Zendadel in just a, a few moments. She's joining me from Los Angeles, California. But first, a couple of announcements. We have announcements. Uh, we're slowly building our, growing our platforms. So you may know that you can find us on YouTube if you're in fact listening to this and sort of watching it on YouTube right now. Uh, you can subscribe there. Please do. It's free and you'll get to hear when there's new episodes of uh, Rook coming your way. Uh, but you can also find the podcast now both on SoundCloud and Spotify. Uh, it's under Rook Media, and also you can subscribe on SoundCloud or Spotify. They usually say get your pod wherever podcasts can be found, wherever you find your podcasts. But I don't, th I don't think we're wherever yet, right, Shia? We're just in a. Are we, I don't think we're on iTunes yet. No, no, we are. No, I think well, just YouTube and SoundCloud and uh, and yeah. Spotify. We're on Spotify. Sp oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. Thank you, Shia. Yes, we are, we are on Spotify. Um, so uh, you can check for Rook Media there, and uh, we really appreciate those who are leaving comments and uh, and who are finding us and who are following us and who are subscribing and uh, spreading the word. We still we're getting our website up, uh, so it might be up any second. In fact, depending on when you're listening to this, if it's after we've launched episode three here, uh, the website might already be up. Uh, but uh, it's Rook Media. Um, it's just to give my besazim. You know, we have to build these things. It's a lean team. Um, but here's another announcement. We, we, we're, as of now, for our Thursday programs, we're doing this every Monday and Thursday. And Thursdays will include a new segment called Letters. Ah, thought the music was going to be a bit more exciting than that, but that's where we'll just use this music for now. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Shia is nodding. Uh, there aren't really uh, letters anymore in terms of people writing letters and mailing them. Um, but we're going to call this letters anyway. This is uh, where I read some of the comments that people have left us and um, some suggestions. Uh, so let me get to a couple here. This from Minacon on YouTube about episode one, which was an interview with uh, Ahmed Ismailion. A very touching interview, Gian. The community shares Dr. Ismailion's grief and anger. This first episode shed some light on the pain that is left behind in the struggle to move forward. As Dr. Ismailion says, the story cannot be forgotten. Thank you for that uh, Minacon or Minacon. This from Farid Paymont. Uh, great interview, loved it. Uh, this was also on YouTube for episode one. Loved it and cried with Hamed every time he shared a little piece of his broken heart with us. Uh, way to go, Jian. Thank you, Farid. Uh, also, uh, he spelt my name Jihan, almost like a jihad or something. But uh, um, but I, I think he means Jian, which I appreciate. This uh, uh, Then on episode two, on Monday, we had Farnoz Lori. This from... Negin Dusti Alavi, who says, Thank you, Gian, for this inspirational story. Uh, Farinoz is among the lucky Iranian women like myself who now live in a world that appreciate and value their talents and skills. My heart goes out to so many other women in Iran whose aptitudes and proficiencies are narrowed down, if not fully crushed, by discriminatory and oppressive practices. Thank you for that, Negin. Farinoz of course, the world champion kickboxer who has now come to Canada. Um, this from a CF, CF this time on YouTube. That, by the way, Negin's comment was on Instagram. This on YouTube about episode two. The music, the production, the content, and last but not least, Xi'an John and his amazing voice. This will grow to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Thank you, CF. Uh, also a shout out to Farinoz Lari. God bless you. Agreed. And finally, uh, this week's Letter of the Week. I'm declaring this Letter of the Week. Uh, just as the music ends, even though uh, we don't really have a prize or anything for Letter of the Week, but we'll figure that out. Uh, this from Samira Sadation on Instagram about episode two. Love this interview. Thank you for introducing Fatty Noz to us. I live in Vancouver and do kickboxing, but didn't know she lives here. Now that I know, thanks to your interview, I'll share this with my current coach so he knows how courageous our Iranian women are. Uh, thank you for that, Samira Sadatian. You have the letter of the week. 
And um, uh, that's a very interesting story that you didn't, you're a kickboxer as well. And Fanny Naz actually, not only does she live in Vancouver, but she has a gym there that uh, mercifully will reopen uh, once the, the COVID nightmare is, uh, well, at least is ebbing, I guess, more. So speaking of which, let's get to our next guest. You know, before this year, maybe for some people, a mandatory order to stay home uh, could have sounded like an unimaginable opportunity to catch up with chores or just chill and not do much, a time that was needed but never found to clean up computer drives, uh, read books, binge watch a show, categorize old photos. Of course, it hasn't entirely turned out that way. Beyond the dystopian nature of events happening around the world in this moment, for those living alone, isolation and loneliness might be felt more than ever. And for those living with other family members, they may find it hard to cope with work, school, and life in the same space, right? So in a time before Corona, a few days at home would have been a great image of staycation, but it is different now. We're in a state of emergency, a worldwide pandemic, population loss, global mourning, the constant quest for finding a cure, an uncertain tomorrow, causing immense stress and anxiety for all. So it only follows that more than ever, we need to pay attention to our mental health and wellness and perhaps to that of those living with us as well. How can we stay sane and even happy in such a turbulent time? How can we take care of ourselves and be kind to each other as well? And for the purposes of this program, what does mental health mean to Iranians in the diaspora who've been through a lot in recent weeks, months, years? My next guest today is a doctor and a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 15 years of experience practicing in California. Dr. Farnoz Zendadel has a weekly educational radio show in LA, which is a live question and answer format. She also participates in a live weekly television show to educate and help others with problems they face. And she is the author of the popular book, Rabatea Manoto, or You and I. Dr. Farnoz Zendadel joins me from Los Angeles today. Hi, Dr. Farnoz. Hi, Zion. Hope you and our listeners are doing okay. Uh, well, thanks Thanks very much for that. Do I, by, by the way, do I call you Dr. Farnoz or Farnoz? Or I, I know you also go, you go by Zen too, right? Yes, call me Farnoz. Okay. Uh, Farnoz, what is it like to be a psychologist working in mental health in the midst of a a pandemic, how are you personally keeping yourself healthy and sane and approaching the kind of work you do? I've been dealing by meditation, having a better connection with my inner self, and also being able to help, you know, my loved ones, my patients. It has been a challenge. I cannot tell you that it's been easy. I'm humbled that people do reach out and I'm able to help them see different perspectives and how we can actually use this time to assess our cognitions, our decision-making, emotions, and make changes in our lives even when we are going through such a difficult time. You know, resilience comes up. It would feel obvious to me that in this time, everybody would or a lot of people would would need therapy or a psychologist uh, that people will be sort of inundating you with phone calls or requests. Is that true? It is very true, especially I can tell you, Jian, for Iranians who have had traumatic experiences of immigration and have been through war, this triggers feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and anxiety. They totally need someone to basically help them to understand what is reality that they're experiencing versus reality that is. And also people who have had history of psychiatric issues, as you can imagine. People who've had to deal with depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, being quarantined at home, it can trigger and worsen it for them. Let me get to all of that. First of all, just in a general question, if you can say briefly, do you find 
you have to be more sensitive with people in general at this moment? I mean, I, I would imagine you always have to be sensitive with clients who are coming to a yeah. psychologist, but is there sort of a, I don't want to be um, uh, dismissive, but a kid gloves approach you have to take at the, in this moment? Definitely. People need compassion at this time. And it's more about Rion joining them where they're at, feeling what they're feeling, instead of jumping to giving them solutions. That's not what they're needing so much right now. They need you to identify and mm. basically empathize with what they're going through. That's quite a responsibility for you. It sure is. And I'll be honest with you, also this helps me center myself. When you know other people need you, somehow you become a better version of you. Hmm. Let me come back to that. That's that's an interesting thing for you to say. Who who are your patients, just in general? Patients are mostly people who have had difficulties in their lives, people who seek individual therapy to work through depression, anxiety, family issues. When people feel this cabin fever of being cooped up, limited, restricted, a lot of other issues come up. Some of my patients are people who have no idea how to deal with their anger, and they need anger management at this time. Are most of your patients in the LA area, and, and are most of them of Iranian descent? 70% yes. Okay. And 25 to 30% are non-Persian, and they're going through a rough time too, as you can imagine. So you're an interesting person to do this kind of case study. I mean, I'm glad that you right off the bat sort of talked about your observations of how people in the Iranian diaspora are, are affected by this, because I was worried about this question. It can seem almost manufactured, you know, to ask about how people of Iranian descent are doing at this time, as if we're not just human beings who react like everyone else. Exactly. But you have, you have talked about cultural differences that have implications of how we react to crisis. In one of your radio conversations, you mentioned that self-isolation is not really well understood or doesn't really even have a place and meaning in Persian culture. You know, Iranians are so community-oriented, uh, used to getting together frequently to eat together and party. Mehmunis together. So, so how do we, uh, how do you see our diaspora coping with the age of quarantine? Actually, Persians are calling it physical isolation, not social isolation. And that's a beautiful refrain. We can still socialize, talk, basically use FaceTime, Zoom, but as, as much as I can tell you, social media can mitigate the effects of quarantine for some of us. It can't replace human interaction in physical space. And for Iranians, this is really difficult, even for myself. I use socialization as an outlet. I used to go out once or twice a week, going out, dancing, being surrounded by light, music, happiness, and that's taken away. And it's not the same to do it from home, connecting virtually with others. Does that mean that people of Iranian descent are somehow heavier impacted on the, by this pandemic or by the self-isolation, by the quarantine? Honestly, I don't like to say heavier because each individual from each culture can definitely be impacted by what's going on. Mm. I, I can't say more, but in a different way, probably. Imagine someone who lost their home, lost a lot of things in Iran and immigrated to Canada and had never got to resolve those issues. This brings about a lot of those difficult memories, a lot of patients are talking about how much they feel they've lost, how much they have been bullied in schools, have had negative experiences, and they keep asking me, doctor, why is this happening now? It's almost like post-traumatic stress is being triggered. And of course, time as well, Jian, when we have more time in our hands, it makes sense to self-reflect on what is going on within ourselves. So more time can actually lead to more anxiety because we have more time to think about our issues? If you are not being stimulated intellectually and physically, if you're sitting in a corner watching videos, shows, or you're just sleeping, 
Of course, this can lead to anxiety, and not just because old memories are resurfacing. It's also because you don't feel productive, you don't feel structured, you lose some sense of feeling in control of yourself and your life. You mentioned the, the war. I mean, Iranians have, have been through so much in the past few decades. There's the the, 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 the revolution and then an eight-year war. And then uh, these events that have left Iranians suffering from P- PTSD, which you spoke about. H- how exactly do those kind of enduring tragedies affect people, even those like you and I who have been in the West for years, in their handling of something like a pandemic? What happens to us? We have to look into biopsychosocial aspect of this. First of all, our brain evolves to be on high alert for potential danger. That's the biological part. The psychological part is more about emotionally we feel more vulnerable, more in danger, and anxiety comes up. That's the social part of it. Also keep in mind, some people may have had to deal with addictions, may have had to deal with other things that they feel they have to put those on hold. They may engage in risky behaviors at this time. I hear a lot of Iranians sometimes say, you know, life is going to end anyway. So what is the point of me working on my addiction at this point? And the social part of it is, as you said in the beginning of the program, a lot of people are feeling either alone or lonely. You could be surrounded by family members and still feel so alone in your own pain. When we put different perspectives together, it's a very difficult time. Yet, keep in mind we can use this time to actually better ourselves. And for people who hear this, if you feel that you have to put your life on hold, not work on your issues, and not take steps to reach your goals, you're actually losing more time because time is so precious. And Jean, during this time, we understand that time is not just precious. The time we lose, it'll never come back. It starts from today. We can be more present in the moment and to feel happier and also reach our goals for the near future as well. Let me get to that positivity, but can you give me examples? I mean, obviously, you don't give names or whatever, but of, of how that has manifested itself in the in the Persian community that you speak to? In other words, what what are our greatest fears? Fear of failure. Fear of not doing okay and perfectionism comes now that this is happening some people say what is the point i've done so much i have worked so hard to get to this place and now that i have to be quarantined at home this is going to be taken away from me which is not reality again it is basically the part that catastrophizes that It's all black and white. It might feel like reality for someone who's lost their job, though, no? Some of it is reality for people who are especially business owners. But at the same time, we keep in mind that we have to do the best we can under these circumstances. At times, we all fail. We all experience barriers. But that doesn't mean it's the end. What, What about the implications for people of Iranian descent and the diaspora of seeing what is happening back in Iran. Even if you don't pour through the newspapers and the online sites and all that each day, you can't sort of miss the tragedy of what's happening uh, on on various levels um, from week to week in Iran. And now, of course, the pandemic uh, finding its footing there before it did in, in most places in the world. What are the implications for the community here of looking back at that? Victimization comes to my mind that they have been victims in some ways of so much that this is another additional experience of feeling why negative, horrible things keep happening. I'm heartened by the idea that a lot of people are reaching out to you in general, Iranians and others, for help. This again may seem like a strange question. These are all this feels like somewhat new territory for me, just because we don't talk about these things a lot in our community. Are, is therapy something right. that Iranians are even comfortable with? I mean, our culture is such such one of suppressed issues, you know, and not wanting to air the dirty laundry. So where does therapy fit in in, in that? I'm actually 
actually very proud of Iranians all over the world. I can tell you that now people understand psychotherapy is about science and it can be taken very seriously. And what I can tell you, they are actually much more open, less repressed. People are understanding that the more they repress their issues and feelings, it actually comes out subconsciously in different ways. And I am touched by Iranians and how open they are actually to therapy and how much they're trusting. I know that in the beginning stage of my work, I would imagine some would have difficulty and, you know, trusting to even talk about what's going Mm -hmm. on internally within them. Mm -hmm. And now it's changed so much. I guess educational programs all over the world have also helped Iranians to gain some clarity that no one is perfect. All of us have flaws. And it's beautiful to be able to speak to someone who is not going to judge us, who is going to explore and help us figure out how we can resolve our issues. I'm actually very touched. One of the things that I hope we do with this program is recognize that, um, you know, the Iranian diaspora is not a monolith either. Communities of Iranian descent in different parts of the world are different from each other. So is there anything endemic to the, um, I mean, we hear about Tehran Jalis and we know, you know, the Shahs of Sunset or whatever, but is there anything endemic to the LA Persian community or Iranian community that, that you can speak to in terms of coping with this time? They're coping differently. Some are in the middle. They are following with the guidelines of quarantine and they are basically having some level of normalcy. They're creating some level of routine in their lives and they're doing great. Some may be acting out. They may not be taking this so seriously. They may even say that they don't want to die because of isolation or because of getting too depressed, staying at home. Some are meeting inside other people's backyards. You know, that's how they're trying to cope. But some, I have to tell you, Jian, it has to do with personality differences and mental health. Some deny that this is a very serious virus. And unfortunately, not only they're putting themselves at risk, but they're putting other people at risk too. And I'm sure this is not just the case in Los Angeles. It's all over. And how do you deal with those Um, people? What do you tell them? Giving advice does not help. Anyone can get advice. For me, I explore. I ask questions. This way, I can get that person to understand what he or she is doing to himself and how would he feel if, you know, by basically, let's say, dating or going out and meeting different people and coming back to elderly parents how dangerous it can be. Believe it or not, some people, when they're in such pain, they don't even understand what's going on. And decision-making becomes very poor. And I do need to say this, people who do have some level of depression, automatically, they have a hard time with judgment. They impulsively make horrible choices that can impact other individuals as well. There's an undertone to some of your answers, which is that you you see this as an opportunity. And that's very inspiring. <laughs> Just before we get that, I have to I do want to ask you though about grief, about Qam, you know? I mean, in these sure. unprecedented times, we're we're dealing with this like most unknown of of life, uncertainty. And can the human mind tell the difference between the sources of grief? Can we somehow compartmentalize grief caused by a macro incident like uh, like coronavirus happening around the world to a grief caused by a micro, something on a more personal level, the loss of a loved one, or is it all in the same folder? People have different definitions of grief. Universally, all of us experience some type of grief, and it's a process in itself. Basically, we don't have control over external factors such as who we lose and what happens out there in the scary world right now. But we do have control over how we process grief. If we are able to actually 
allow ourselves to feel and also at the same time work through it instead of repressing it. I know a friend of mine just lost her dad about two weeks ago and she told me the way she is coping with it is she's allowing herself to cry, she's allowing to talk about memories of her dad. At the same time, she has to keep herself busy by cooking, taking care of her children. This way she feels she can survive this. Was her dad and here uh, in North America or was was he in Iran? In America. No, in America, actually. And he didn't die due to this virus. He was sick for a long time. But he probably, they can't have a, a, a proper funeral for him. They can't, they can't visit him. I mean, it's a, it's a, that's also a, a, a tragedy of all this is that when people, we do lose people, we can't okay. even mourn in the, the way we traditionally do, right? Exactly. We can't. What she was telling me, it was very interesting. She said she got to say goodbye to her dad the night before he passed away. And to her, that was enough. She actually found it in some ways easier not to uh, have a proper funeral. She feels she can actually, she doesn't have to associate with others. For some people who need more personal space, they're more introverts, this is uh, working for them. They don't have to deal with outside noise. Hmm. And I think that's how it is for her. Not everyone needs to mourn by, you know, having funeral and doing what we have been doing for so long, all of us. Tell me about how we can harness this notion of opportunity, how we can see this this obviously difficult time, and obviously we don't want to be disrespectful to those who are losing loved ones uh, by calling it an opportunity, but how we become what you called the best, you said you've you've become a better version of yourself. Tell me what that means. I have time to truly look inside and assess what I have been doing with my life and what is it that I want to do more of What is it that I'm lacking? It's more time to myself away from outside external world. The other opportunity can be instead of imagine watching passively, just watching movies passively. This is the time that you can actually make your own movie. You can actually participate in identifying what it is you want to do in your life and actually plan it and take steps towards it. That's another way of coping with this. So keep in mind, you have to stay mentally stimulated. As human beings, if we are not stimulated, then definitely we may focus or obsess on what is lacking in our lives or even going to our past. It's okay to assess our past, but we don't want to get stuck there and do nothing. Oh, and I have to Zion say this, please limit watching or listening to the news. A lot of people I notice, they obsessively watch the news and they're putting their lives on hold every five to ten minutes. And, there, and there's literally there's li- literally a death count, like like a telethon or something, on the screen <laughs> exactly. as you look at it. I mean, it, it, you're right. It's, it becomes both um, addictive and, and it does feel destructive to just sort of focus on that. But I, you know, I do worry about your health because we need you doing what you're doing. So, so before we let you go, what do you do to be kind to yourself? What does Dr. Farnaz, what does Zen do to be kind to yourself in quarantine? Balance is the key, Gian. As long as we have some level of balance in our lives, we have enough time to enjoy ourselves, we have enough time to analyze what's going on, we have enough time to exercise, we have enough time to read a book that we didn't get a chance to read before. Life goes on and this will end as well. It's not going to go on forever. Again, I want to tell you, make your own movie. Don't live vicariously through other people. A lot of people, I, I see that that's what they do. For instance, someone may love to play soccer and may only watch movies about soccer. Why don't you get out there in your backyard or even in front of your house? We can actually go outside. 
nature helps. No one told us that we cannot go outside and take walks and enjoy ourselves. What if I get up a few times from the couch to get more <laughs> while I'm watching the soccer movie? Will that, does that count? <laughs> as long as Gion, you're doing that twice a day and you're not doing it every five to Way too ten much minutes to the Way point of I can tell you right binge now. eating. <laughs> uh, I, it is such a it's, it's such a pleasure. It's instructive, and and you have such um, passion and compassion in your voice. And and uh, uh, thank you for doing this. I hope maybe you'll do this again because I I'm uh, there's a, a million questions I want to ask you, but uh, uh, it's really it's really good to have you out there. Thank you for doing what you do. I appreciate your time, and I would love to be back too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Farnaz Zendadel. She's a doctor and licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, she is uh, the author of the popular book, Rabatea Manoto, or You and I. She joined me today from Los Angeles, California. This is full time for Rook today. I want to go out on a piece of music that some might recognize, a piece called Royaya Hasti. This is an old recording performed by Colom Hussein Banon and composed by Mahmoude Zolfonun. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to the Rook team for all the hard work. Thanks to you guys following us and spreading the word to be continued. Right.